0: Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 31. Today, I'm taking you to my hometown of Waco, Texas, actually right outside of Waco to the tiny town of Valley Mills. I'll be talking with Joey Bagnasco, who's the winemaker. I'm also sharing the latest news about the Texas wine industry. We've got a major award nomination, a new tasting room for a popular winery, and national recognition for being a trendy wine region, and more. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Congratulations to McPherson Sellers for being nominated for American Winery of the Year by Wine Enthusiast Magazine. This year marks the 22nd anniversary of Wine Enthusiast's annual Wine Star Awards, honoring the individuals and companies that make outstanding contributions to the wine and alcohol beverage world. Winners will be announced in February. Other nominees for Winery of the Year are the Duckhorn Portfolio in California, and actually that's several different associated wineries, Josh Sellers in California, McBride Sisters, which is a multinational corporation that produces wine in New Zealand and California, and Newton Vineyards in California. Here's what the nomination committee says about McPherson. McPherson is a giant in the Texas wine community with a delicious wide range of wines helmed by two-times James Beard-nominated winemaker Kim McPherson. Although he has painted the modern portrait of high-quality winemaking in Texas, his father, Clint, or Doc McPherson, provided all the requisite tools. What started out as an experimental vine planting in the 1960s, at a time when there were virtually none in the state, evolved into an extraordinary framework that has shaped the Texas High Plains landscape today. Kim founded his own winery in 2000 and continues to play a dynamic role in Texas wine, which includes Crafting Locations TX Wine for E&J Gallo. One of the state's biggest brands, it carries the Lone Star spirit to consumers around the country. Congratulations to Kim and McPherson Cellars. It's nice for the Texas Hill Country to be included in Food & Wine's new article, Six American Wine Vacations to Take This Season. They recommend Napa Valley, Lake Chalane in Washington State, two spots in New York, the Finger Lakes and the North Fork of Long Island, Vermont, and of course the Texas Hill Country. But it's what they say about Napa that really got my attention. When introducing the Napa section, this is the sentence that starts the paragraph. And I quote, Although it may be trendier to taste wine at a Colorado or Texas vineyard, Napa Valley always makes for a splendid wine vacation. So we're trendy, apparently, and I'm not complaining about that. You might come here because it's trendy, but I bet you stay because of the wine. And on a recent Texas Fine Wine Happy Hour, a Texas Hill Country winemaker commented that they're getting a lot of visitors from Dallas and Fort Worth, that they're suddenly popular among the DFW set. Although Dallas is a huge market for Texas wine, we've been... Maybe a little lukewarm on Texas wine, and it's a hard market to get traction in. Well, we may not be early adopters, but we got here as fast as we could. Now let's start setting up some Texas wine dinners in Dallas and Fort Worth, and let's fill them up with podcast listeners and Texas wine lovers. This just in, John Rivenberg of Kerrville Hills Winery is opening a new tasting room in High, Texas. Of course, that's a small town between Fredericksburg and Johnson City along Wine Road 290. It will be called Hill at High. It may become the primary location for Kerrville Hills Winery, or it may not. And speaking of John Rivenberg, he's one of three Texas wineries or winemakers featured in a new Forbes.com article written by Katherine Todd. Her article is called Texas Wines Show Adventurous Spirit and Love for Diversity. Ed and Susan Aller of Fall Creek and their winemaker Sergio Quadra, and also Susan and Billy Johnson of Texas Heritage Vineyard, are all included. It's a thorough and expansive article, so I really can't even begin to summarize it for you, but I hope you'll take the time to find the article and learn some interesting background about the history of Texas wine, grapevine selection, and winemaking specifics. It's good stuff. I've been getting a bunch of questions about jobs in Texas wine. If you're a job seeker, it's your lucky day. There are two primary locations for jobs in Texas wine one is the Classified Ads section on Texaswinetrail.com, which is the website for Texas Hill Country Wineries. This is your go-to spot for jobs in the Texas Hill Country. The second is the Classified Ads on the website for the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association. That's twigga twgga.org. This site features Texas wine jobs all over the state. On both sites, you'll find everything from positions in tasting rooms to assistant winemaker jobs to cellar hands and here's one that just came across my desk. Salt Lick Vineyards is looking for full-time vineyard help on that legendary 50-acre vineyard in Driftwood. That's about 20 minutes southwest of Austin. Get in touch with Garrett at Salt Lick for more information. This is hot off the presses. There's a new novel that's set in the Texas Hill Country. Here's author Heather Renee May to tell you about the book.
1: Hi, Shelley. This is Heather Renee May, and I am Super excited to share with you and your listeners about uh, this debut novel. What happens when an author quarantines in a 19-foot travel trailer in the hill country off of the Texas Wine Trail? Well, she writes a book, of course. Uh, I'm excited to share with you Cactus Christmas. It's a Texas Wine Trail series, and it features 14 of the wineries along the Texas Wine Trail, including Texas Heritage, Bingham, Longhorn, Fiesta, Pontotoc, Fredericksburg, Lost Straw, Los Pines, Messina Hoff, Grave Creek and Heath Sparkling Lines, Abastris, High Meadow, and Ron Yates. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about this book. So, New York Times bestselling author Kate Summers is facing divorce in her 40s and up against a hard deadline. She rents an airstream on the Texas wine trail to find inspiration, but discovers much more. She meets Zach, a medical doctor from the Northeast, scouting for a winery to invest in. They decide to spend a week enjoying tasting, but just as they're getting to know one another, he has to return suddenly back home. The holidays are hard for Kate, as she lost her mother two years ago. This cactus Christmas is prickly and sweet, as Kate must heal her heart, try to reconnect with her estranged sister Lily, and find her way on her own. Will she finish her book? Will she meet back again? Will timing ever be right? Advanced praise from indie readers. Heather Renee Mays' Texas Christmas is an uplifting and immensely readable novel about a woman's journey back to happiness and love after a divorce framed in a gorgeous texas wine country setting. I'm super pleased to share with you that pre-sales start October 1st and the book launches on October 29th. So your listeners, if they want more information, they can go to Heather Renee May dot com slash books. That's Heather Renee e may Like the Month dot com slash books. And there they'll be able to pre-order ebook, paper book, audio version. They'll also be able to go to a link where they can visit the shops of the 14 wineries that are highlighted in the book and even get discounts and purchase their own bottles of wine to have shipped to them so they can have the whole Cactus Christmas experience. There's also a link for merch as well as book tour information. The author will be at Fredericksburg Trade Days all through November and December as well as hosting wine tours and meet and greets at many of the wineries throughout uh, the coming months. Listeners can download
0: the first two chapters for free by going to heatherreneemay.com books. Finally, Twigga's Grape Camp is coming up, and you can register now. The event takes place November 9th and 10th in Dripping Springs. This looks like a great program if you're really into Texas viticulture. A couple of seminars that caught my eye, Texas-sized vineyard mistakes to avoid, and also Man versus Machine, deciding what to mechanize when labor is scarce. They both sound very interesting. You can find all these articles by going to the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. My newsletter subscribers get to hear the -the behind-the-scenes stories of putting out a Texas wine podcast. They also get some fun freebies, which in the past have included a Texas wine quiz, a list of my favorite wines from my early pandemic phase, and most recently, a Texas wine crossword puzzle. The newsletter includes my latest wine experiences and some favorite wines that I don't have time to talk about on the show. To get in on the fun, please sign up for the podcast newsletter on the website, This is Texaswine.com. then click Newsletter Sign Up. Joey Banyasco is the winemaker at Valley Mills Vineyards, located in tiny Valley Mills, Texas, just outside of Waco. Since I'm from Waco, I consider Valley Mills my hometown winery. I was happy to sit down with Joey to discuss making wine in Waco. Here's our interview. Thanks for joining me today, Joey. Tell me what's going on in Waco or near Waco in Valley Mills at Valley Mills Vineyards.
2: Thanks, Shelly, and uh, love being on the podcast So at Valley Mills Vineyards, uh, like you say, we're just west of Waco. We are growing grapes, making wine. We've been out there since 2007, and uh, yeah, we're having a a great time of it. Making wine from 100% Texas grown grapes. Um, We're making lots of Tempranillo, Morvedra, Grenache on the red side. Um, Lots of Viognier, Vermentino on the white side. So it's my job. I love it. My passion as well, and ask me anything.
0: Good deal. Well, tell me a little bit about your estate vineyard and then where else do you source grapes?
2: Mm-hmm. So we farm 12 acres of grapes. Um, we're in Bosque County and we're growing Tempranillo, some young Movedra, uh, some Viognier, and a little bit of Muscat Canelli. And uh, the majority of our local acreage is Tempranillo. And so uh, that's that's where it all started for us on the farming side um, for myself. I was, uh, 16 years old when my father started planting some grapes and I started helping out. And, uh, yeah, so that's the core of our program.
0: In addition to your estate vineyard, you get grapes from other places in Texas?
2: We do. And, uh, it varies by year, but, uh, typically we're something like 60, 40, um, West Texas to local for us, Bosque County. And so, um, yeah, this year, it was more like 70% from West Texas. So um, we're, we're diversified, um, much like a lot of wineries in the state, which is helpful um, with our continental climate. It's nice to have grapes in different areas. And so, yeah, we do. Uh, we're growing as much as we can, and we'll be expanding the acreage that we've got near Waco and also expanding our contracts in West Texas.
0: You are not in the Hill Country AVA. You're just north of that. So is the soil different there?
2: Yes, correct. We are just north of the Hill Country AVA and technically not within its boundaries. Although um, casually, people still kind of tend to refer to our area as an extension of the Hill Country. Um, It's it's an extension of the same Balcones Escarpment. And um, so it's quite hilly where our vineyard is and the soils are, it's all, you know, the substrate, the bedrock is all limestone, much like Fredericksburg in the hill country, most of it. Um, we tend to have a little more topsoil in our area, which is actually really nice. Um, even like on the sides and tops of hills, um, which can be a limiting factor in some areas and, um, sometimes a little more nitrogen and more organic matter. So we tend to do very little fertilization, if any, because, um, we tend to get lots of vigor because of our soils. So, um, yeah, we've got really nice soils, and um, having grown grapes in the Fredericksburg area um, through a previous job, and having some experience, you know, with grapes in West Texas and all over the state, um, it really is a nice place to grow. And uh, yeah, we'll, as evidenced by uh, the fact that we'll be uh, expanding our vineyards. So,
0: well, can you walk me through? When you receive grapes at Valley Mills, you have a special winery. And so I want you to kind of talk me through where the grapes come into the winery and what happens from there, because I think it's uh, pretty unique for Texas.
2: Thank you. Uh, we agree that it's special. And um, I think what you're referring to is we've got a gravity flow system in which we, we've we got a three-story production facility. And uh, we actually have our tasting room on that third story to get a nice view of our vineyards, But our crush pad is also up there. So we're bringing grapes in um, and and crushing all up, basically up on the third floor. And then um, all the solids for us uh, in winemaking, all your grape skins and seeds and everything actually stay up on the top floor. And uh, basically only juice in the case of white grapes or wine in the case of fermented reds um, are coming downstairs. And so we get to do gravity racking um, down the three levels and, uh, a big advantage to our kind of gravity flow system. Um, well, one is that it allowed us to get kind of a underground barrel cellar, uh, about 30 feet below. Um, that's just, we cut out this big hillside and built the building into the hill. Um, you know, we didn't completely invent the concept, but we copied some smart people. Um, and, uh, Anyway, so that's one advantage. The, the underground barrel cellar that takes very little energy to climate control all year. And, uh, the other really nice advantage is we never, um, really need to put like red wines through a pump, um, especially during fermentation. And, uh, so we, in that way, we tend to not need to, you know, grind up any seeds and sometimes, um, putting must through a pump early on can, um, lend some bitterness, the kind of bitterness you would get from like chewing on grapes, uh, seeds, you know? And so, um, yeah, gravity, gravity production on the crush side and, uh, in the early stages helps you sometimes avoid a little bit of, uh, of seed tannin. Um, and it's, it honestly saves us lots of time. It's, it's a really efficient system. And so I'm really happy with the design of the winery.
0: So it's just a more gentle approach, I guess. So you're just kind of babying, babying the juice or the wine along until you get it into bottle.
2: Yes, and we can still extract all the tannin we want, you know, from skins, and, and you'll still get some seed tannin and everything. But it kind of gives us that option, where if we want to make a, a lighter or fruitier style of red wine, we certainly can.
0: That's nice. So, what is your general winemaking approach?
2: I would say. Um, something you may not hear from a lot of people, which is that I'm not a minimalist by design. Um, I'm interested in making the very best wines we possibly can. And so, um, I also, we look to tradition a lot when, in terms of, you know, winemaking practice. And I'm very aware of the, uh, that the, the role I'm performing has been done for probably up to 10,000 years. And so, um, I would say my general philosophy is um, humble, looking to tradition, but also taking kind of a maximalist approach. In, um, in, in terms of red wines, we tend to take everything through fermentation separately so that we get to have lots of fun blending afterwards. And uh, in terms of white wines, um, because of our warm climate, uh, we tend to do you know no malolactic on anything. It's all stainless, released soon. Uh, as fresh and aromatic as we can keep them. And so those are some generals. Um I I really believe in being flexible in um approaching different varietals quite differently, um in reacting to what the season gives you and just keeping an open mind and keeping your options open. Um there's uh I'm very thorough with researching um like when I say I'm a maximalist it doesn't mean I'll add anything to wine. Um, but uh, but you know certainly within the bounds of what we know and um, what we can do in terms of you know blending and little tweaks here and there um, yeah we uh, we'll do everything we can we'll run out the clock sort of so to speak on uh, trying to make the very best wines we can um, but uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there in the um, in the world of wine um, in terms of most people describe themselves as something on the side of the spectrum where you're um, minimal intervention. Um, but uh, nature just wants to make vinegar really every time. And uh, so I, I think it's silly sometimes to pretend like we do nothing uh, as winemakers, like we're intervening and we're taking grapes and guiding them into wine. And uh, so, yeah, for, we're, for example, like pretty obsessive about quality control and, and, we trial everything. Um, we, we don't take big risks to be honest. Um, we won't, uh, you won't find us, um, being Guinea pigs. We're usually the second adopters on everything. So, um, yeah, cautious, maximalist, uh, respectful of tradition.
0: Uh, the first time I heard of Valley Mills was, was that I heard of your Tempranillo. I heard your Tempranillo was great. Mm-hmm. So can you speak more about specifically Tempranillo and are you, do, would you consider that your signature grape for Valley Mills and what do you love about it in Texas and how do you approach that from a winemaking perspective?
2: Um, yes, we do love Tempranillo and it was the first red grape that we had a lot of experience with um, growing it in our state vineyard. The uh, Those estate vines um, are still producing, they're 14 years old and um one of the i think the biggest medal our wineries ever won uh, was a for our 2014 vintage of that estate tempranillo um we won a couple of big medals for that one and um so yes it's still a staple of our program um i would say tempranillo and morvedra kind of being our our two biggest uh, grapes in terms of volume in the last few years and um grapes that we really believe in for texas and we'll we'll continue to expand upon um I love Tempranillo because um, of the to me the the aging potential of the grape is just fantastic and you can get some really really fine tannin Um, if you get Tempranillo properly ripe and uh, give it enough time in the barrel it's just um, it's not always the most aromatic grape but it's just so um, uh, pretty on the palate Um, and so they can be so well integrated um, it's a grape that takes on Oak really well. And, uh, so we follow kind of the Spanish template and, and use, uh, lots of American Oak up to 50% new Oak sometimes. And, um, yeah, so, you, you know, there's other grapes that sometimes could be fruitier, or flashier or prettier, um, on the aroma or more impactful. But, um, to me, Tempranillo, it's really uh, subtle on the aroma, um, and it's really well framed by Oak and, uh, it's hard to beat if you have the time to properly age it, um, and and really take care of it during the the maturation process.
0: Well, and I'm sure I, my mother is listening. And so I must mention that my family is a huge supporter of your rosé. Thank you. Um, Love the rosé. And I know that it was, uh, put at the state fair this year it was enjoyed at the state fair by thousands of texans you know Um, what
2: they actually took our last rosé we're sold out now um we uh we're going to be out of rosé until january and so yeah as a category um it was something we didn't even make five years ago and now (laughs) now we sell more rosé than white wine
0: That is unbelievable. I actually was just having a conversation about rosé with another winery, and they were saying that it's somewhat hard to forecast what demand for rosé is going to be, and that people don't want last year's rosé. Of course, they want the freshest rosé. And although I think aged rosé is lovely, we don't yet quite have an appetite for it widely. So um, tell me about your...
2: I was gonna say we don't have aged or unaged rosé right now. <laughs>
0: Just zero, but
2: nothing. Yes.
0: What What is the variety, and uh, what's your approach to that to making that?
2: So the core of our rosé program is sinso, and it'll it'll continue to be. Um, I love the kind of big grapefruit and lemon and citrus notes that sinso can give, and uh, sometimes if you get it a little bit riper, you can get some really nice like uh, honeydew melon aromas too. So um the the last couple of vintages of rose as well as what we've got coming up will be Sinso with um small amounts maybe less than 10% um in every case so far of either uh Grenache or Mervedra. Um and so yeah we, we really try to make it in the Provence style. Um light, crisp. They are I think better in the first uh first couple of years when they're really fresh. And um we go, um, bone dry or depending on the vintage, very close. So, um, it's always going to be a dry or nearly dry rosé for us. Um, depending on the phenolic bitterness, to be honest. So, um, the ideally in winemaking, when you're making a rosé, you need to be very careful in the beginning stages. Um, especially with your timing between like pressing and crushing. Um, it's, a uh, it's a style of wine that uh, is very delicate. And if you extract too much bitterness, um, a rosé is a very unforgiving style for that. So, um, to make a properly dry rosé with absolutely 0% sugar, um, you really can't over extract it. And so you've got to basically, uh, crush and press very quickly and not press too hard and, uh, do what you can to limit, limit, um, the extraction of any kind of green tan in there. Um, because at the point of ripeness that we're picking rosé grapes, um, we, uh, I think you'll find we pick our rosé grapes earlier than most Texas wineries. Um, if you do extract any tannin there, it's going to be really green vegetal tannin that you don't want. So um, our philosophy on rosé is just pick it early, press it fast. Um, we do nice cold fermentations and, again, bottle them really young.
0: Sounds delicious. I've heard it said that it's harder to be a winery in Texas because there's just not kind of the deep depth of industry knowledge and support services. And I imagine that if you're in Waco or another town outside of kind of the larger wine-focused areas around Lubbock and around Fredericksburg, I imagine it's that much harder. But then on the other hand, you know, I'm from Waco and so I when I think about my hometown winery, I think of Valley Mills. And so I imagine that you have a real strong sense of community that supports your winery, although it's diff- maybe different in Waco since there's so many, um, there's so much Baylor influence and supposedly Baptists don't drink, but that's a whole other topic.
2: Everybody's welcome. <laughs> they can come out too. Uh, we won't hold it against them.
0: <laughs> I'm guessing that there's some truth in both of those statements, but do you think it's harder to be a winery in a, a place like Valley Mills?
2: I, I don't, um, there's, that's a big question you asked, but, um, I, I also see both sides of it, like you say, but I really love the opportunity to be a full production winery in a place where that's a rarity, um, at least in our local area. Um, like you say, our guests and wine club members, I think really appreciate just the fact that we exist and, um, uh, we do see ourselves absolutely as in competition with other, you know um, high level Texas wineries. And we're trying to make a, uh, a product that can compete on a, you know, statewide and national, um, kind of, uh, area, but, um, yeah, there's always trade offs. There's some advantages to being the only kind of large winery in your area. And, um, yeah, I think the, the part that might be the toughest is, um, uh, finding trained staff and educating people. I think we do a lot of work to, um, we're often bringing in employees um, who have never been in our industry before and really having to train people from scratch um, for both on the production side and on the tasting room side. And so depending on the job, that can be harder or easier, but there's some roles that we've um, had to train people for years to really, really, um, get where they need to be. And so it takes an extra commitment to that. And I'm sure if we were, um, in the midst of a more developed wine area, we'd have, you know, more young people with the skills that we need and all that. Um, but, uh, anyways, I, we're not complaining. We're, we're loving it.
0: I think labor is scarce everywhere right now from, from what I'm hearing.
2: If anyone's listening to the podcast and wants to work at our winery, please email me. <laughs>
0: you guys do a lot of events at Valley mills from weddings to monthly winemaker dinners, which I understand are super fun.
2: So we have a, uh, a little saying that may seem cliche or cheesy, but we really aim to delight our customers. And for us, uh, part of that means we plan really fun events. Um, the monthly dinners you mentioned, we'll do um, a springtime crawfish boil and a big harvest party in the summer um, we did a sparkling wine and oyster release party last fall. Um, so, uh, we do some tastings down in our barrel cellar. Um, we've done some really fun vertical tastings, um, where someone can get to, you know, taste, I think seven or eight different vintages of Tempranillo. We did this last one. So, um, yeah, we love putting on events for folks. Um, we've got wine club members that live too far to come to all these events, but, uh, for some of our local folks, uh, that we get to see more often. Um, yeah, those are a lot of fun.
0: And it's such a beautiful space. How long have you been in that building?
2: Just two and a half years now. Um, yeah, the vineyard's been there for 14 years, but, uh, yeah. And we've been, um, yeah, making wine since 2009, but, uh, but only in our current facility for about two and a half years, which, which was a big milestone for us and, uh, and a big change in a good way.
0: So many more people are visiting Waco now than ever before, thanks to our um, hometown favorites, Chip and Joanna. So I imagine that the timing was just right on getting your new facility open and seeing some real uh, increase in tourists coming through there.
2: Yes. um, The timing was great. Um, I'm glad we opened when we did because we had a full year in our new facility before COVID hit, which was... uh, which was preferable, but, uh, but yes, Waco um, before and now after the, the kind of lull of the pandemic um, we're seeing lots of tourism. Um, Our local um, tourism Bureau folks tell me that Waco uh, specifically the Magnolia silos in Waco are, I believe the number one tourist destination um, that brings people from out of state um, in Texas now uh, surpassing the Alamo. Uh, That was their, if that stat is wrong, it's the Waco, uh, tourism bureau's fault. But, uh, but I believe it. I mean, it's, um, our downtown area here in Waco can be really packed with tourists and some of them certainly are coming out to the winery. So, um, yeah, that's been nice.
0: Have you seen local restaurants get behind Texas wine or are there a couple that, that you want to shout out that do a good job with that?
2: Yes. Um, I definitely have seen a change. Um, we've put a big focus on our estate winery and so we're not widely in distribution. Um, but in terms of, uh, really high level, uh, restaurants that love Texas wine, um, I love going down to Fredericksburg to the Cabernet grill and, uh, and you can find Valley Mills vineyards wines there and their manager and sommelier uh, Elizabeth just does a great job with that menu. So, um, that's always a favorite.
0: And I think that you're also on the menu at Vintner's hideaway, right?
2: Yes. Um, that's going to be probably the best...
0: I mean, not that that's a restaurant, but...
2: Yes, but great tasting room um, just right off Main Street in Fredericksburg. And so if uh, if folks are interested in our wines, um, that's the best place to find them down in the Hill Country. Um, yeah, love the folks at Vintner's Hideaway. And uh, you can always find some of, our, some of our offerings there.
0: Is there a big disease pressure in Bosque County as far as Pierce's disease or any other disease?
2: You know, um, we haven't seen pierces in our vineyards. Um, all our pierces tests have come back negative, but, um, we've seen it in uh, some fairly close vineyards. So we know it's around, um, and, uh, we certainly have plenty of fungal pressure, um, just as much, uh, maybe even more than, uh, the, like vineyards in Fredericksburg. So in a really rainy season like this, we've got plenty of like downy mildew, for example, that we've got to control in the vineyard, but, um, but there's nothing so far, uh, fingers crossed that's been, uh, uh you know, a reason that we can't grow high quality grapes and vitis vinifera, um, canopy management is really, really important. We do lots of, uh, leaf pulling and keeping our canopies really thin, um, and then planting on hillsides is really helpful and in windier spots that dry out faster um so yeah if you plant vines really close together give them huge canopies down in a low spot in our region um some of the fungal pressures can uh, can take over especially with vitis vinifera you know 100% european vines but um yeah we we keep an open mind for um, like i'm not against in the future, maybe, uh, using more hybrids, but, um, to be very frank right now, the quality's not there, uh, in my opinion, um, the best wines in the world are still made from the classic European grapes. And, uh, when that changes, or when we have a, um, a grape with more native DNA in it, that can really match up to the the world-class aroma and palate that we can, uh, get from vitis vinifera, then we'll make a switch. But, Right now, we're committed to doing the hard work of, uh, of farming these European vines that aren't sure uh, what to make of our Texas climate.
0: When you're not drinking your own wines, what wines of the world do you enjoy?
2: I love Italian wines. Um, I love Amarone and Valpolicella blends. Um, yeah, I love uh, Brunello's and uh, some Chianti. Um, yeah. I like, I like all kinds of wine. Um, Tempranillo from Spain and, and Monastrell or Mourvedre. Um, I could talk a lot about, you know, I have a very, very broad palate, um, more dry than sweet, but, um, yeah.
0: I might follow up with you because I'm doing a, um, a tasting of Mourvedre through the world for a group in Dallas and, what I feel like I don't have a good feel for is how Morvedra behaves in the vineyard. Mm,
2: I can give you a few thoughts now. Um, so Morvedra is uh, in most aspects, a joy to grow in the vineyard. Um, it has a number of really positive qualities. Number one, it's a late um, it's late to break bud. So um, it's, it's late to ripen as well, but um, being late to break bud in the springtime means that um like for us, for example, it's at least 10 days later than Tempranillo. And so those 10 days, you know, are sometimes the difference between getting hit by a late freeze or not. So it has that nice advantage. It has, Morvedra has a very upright growth habit. So, um, it actually doesn't tend to get really brambly. It tends to make really well architectured cordons and it grows well in a, a vertical trellis system, like, a you know, vertical shoot positioning system. Um, pretty, really easy to prune and manage in that sense. Um, it is somewhat susceptible, um, to, to downy and powdery mildew. So that's a, a slight drawback. Um, and like I mentioned, it's a late ripener. And so you've got to keep those vines really happy throughout the entirety of the season. Um, in, uh, in France, there's, there's lots of more that they can't even in many seasons can't even quite get all the way ripe because it's such a late, uh, ripener and, cold weather in October is coming, you know, and the grapes still quite, you know, aren't quite ripe. But, uh, in Texas we can ripen Movedra fully in just about every year, which is a really, um, it's a, it's a really nice climactic advantage that we enjoy. And so I think that's one of the reasons that Movedra does so well here. It also tends to be, um, really forgiving on the acid side. Um, so one of the, um, probably most people who listen to this podcast may be aware that um, the warmer regions um, tend to be associated with higher pHs and thus lower acidity um, in in grapes and thus in wine. And um, Morvedra usually has, it it holds its acid fairly well um, as it ripens. And so we can often, um, like the trend for us is that we're picking Morvedra six weeks later than Tempranillo and but it still has a better pH, far better. So.
0: Oh, interesting. Yes.
2: And that allows you to, to be more natural in the cellar and get away with no or very little acid additions on a grape like that, because the wines are going to uh, turn out balanced, even in a very hot climate. So, um, yeah, if you can avoid the, uh, the fungal issues it can be prone to, and the fact that it's not the thickest skinned grape, um, most years in Texas can be really good years for Movedra. Um I really believe in it and uh especially in West Texas where it's a little drier and so those fungal issues aren't as much of a, a problem. Um it just goes gangbusters, yeah. It it oh it is very susceptible to being overcropped. So um I haven't seen really high quality Movedra that's cropped much above 5 or 6 tons an acre. Um, it will punish you for trying to get too much grapes per acre, unfortunately.
0: And do you bottle a single varietal or do you use it as a blender?
2: Um, we're doing both. Um, our, our past vintages have all been single varietals, but this year we brought in, um, more Rhone blenders. And so, uh, you want to join us for some blending trials uh, about a month from now, we'll be sitting down with more Vedra, uh, Garnacha or Grenache, uh, some Cinso and Cunhoa. Um, We've got a lot of Rhone varietals to blend this year. So yeah.
0: How fun. I would love to call me. Hmm. What am I missing that I haven't asked you about that makes Valley mills unique, special cutting edge?
2: Gosh, I really think that our attention to detail is tough to compete with. Um, just day by day, my assistant winemaker, Charlie and I are, are constantly having conversations about how to improve 1% here and 3% there. And we make meticulous notes on all aspects of grape growing and winemaking. And we really do see improvements every single year. Um, and we've done, you know, little experiments I can't reveal that have turned out amazingly. And then we, we shift everything in that direction. And so, um, our attention to detail is, uh, I think what hopefully sets our product apart. And then on the tasting room side, um, we've really spent a lot of time trying to hire the best friendliest people we can and, um, to really serve our guests with kind of Texas hospitality, um, and to give people just a great relaxing experience, um, and so we want to be a place that people can think of as their little getaway, um, you know. Or if people want to be a little more engaged and learn about the process, we've got a great tour at the estate. Um, but uh, but yeah, for me, everything starts with the farming side. It's a it's a funny game growing grapes and making wine because it feels like you're kind of chasing the dragon. I think that's a terminology for from. Uh, people are addicted to drugs, but, uh, you're, you're (laughs) like chasing the perfect vintage every year and there's a certain percentage of the variables involved that you can control. And so you just obsess over perfecting the variables that are under your control. Um, and most years you still leave the year with the understanding that you made a few mistakes and nature held you back. And, um, now and then the stars just align and everything is just easy. So we live for those moments.
0: That's great. Well, you mentioned that you learned viticulture or worked in, in the vineyard with your dad. How did you learn the winemaking side of the business?
2: So I, um, I learned winemaking by mentoring um, under, uh, under David Culkin at Pernala Cellars. Um, and before that, I worked at Solaro Estate Winery in Tripping Springs. So I spent about three years working for other Texas wineries and um, had a great time uh, at both places and learned a lot. And, um, really a a ton of what I learned at those previous positions shaped, um, what I'm doing with Valley Mills Vineyards and, uh, yeah. So thanks to those guys.
0: How many cases do you produce?
2: Yeah, we're making a little over 3000 cases a year and selling just about a hundred percent of that direct to consumer. So it's pretty much all going to our wine club and folks that visit
0: tasting room. And uh, I, my mom has been out to the farmer's market and picked up wine uh, out there a time or two, but she always goes looking for the rosé and they're like, oh no, we don't have enough of that to bring it to the farmer's market. So, we, so mom, you got to go out there.
2: Yes. We, um, we've learned our lesson and we've doubled our rosé production. Uh, we just can't catch up all at once. So as of January, January. 2022 and beyond, we're trying not to run out of rosé.
0: My mom's going to be on your doorstep on release day, I can guarantee.
2: (laughs) Love it. Anyone who's listening, please come visit. Check it out for yourself. Um, Give us a shot. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see it. We're open every single day.
0: And you guys were my first social media follow when I very first started my Instagram page. I was out there handing out my hot off the presses business cards and you were my first follow. So I appreciate that.
2: Thank you, Shelley. I love the podcast. Um, I've stolen a couple ideas from people already. It's going great.
0: You can follow Valley Mills Vineyards on socials at Valley Mills Vineyards, and the website is valleymillsvineyards.com. Stay tuned for demerits and gold stars. If you're looking for a place to stay in Fredericksburg, check out heavenlyhost.com. My Little Cottage is finally live on the site. It's a two-bedroom, one-bath cottage located less than a mile from Main Street in Fredericksburg. We're calling it Cork and Cactus. Whether you're looking for a romantic getaway on a nearby ranch or a cute place in town just blocks from Main Street, you'll want to go check out Fredericksburg's latest shops, restaurants, and fabulous wineries. There's so much to see and do. You can book Cork and Cactus at heavenlyhost.com and tell them the Texas Wine Podcast sent you. If you need suggestions on places to visit, reach out to me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. And now it's time for demerits and gold stars. My gold star goes to Maddie White, McPherson Sellers Wine Club Manager and Service Manager. She wrote a blog post on visitlubbock.org. That's called A Beginner's Guide to Wine. It explains the winemaking process from grape to glass in an approachable way. And since it appeared on visitlubbock.org, I'm sure it was read by a lot of people that don't usually consume wine articles, and that's a good thing for Texas wine. My demerit goes out to wineries that don't include key information about visiting them on their social media and website. I'm talking about things like hours of operation, closures for special events, and required purchases. This week, I stopped by a winery to do a tasting. I checked their Instagram and their website to make sure they were open on a Monday and that no reservation was required. Then I showed up by myself and asked to do a quick tasting at the bar. It was only then that I learned that the winery requires a food purchase to do a tasting, Now, I know this was a thing back in the early days of the pandemic, but I didn't know that any wineries were still requiring a food purchase. But anyway, I was so surprised, and frankly, I had just had lunch, and I was by myself, so I really didn't want to have any additional food. And I just decided that I would leave, and I said I'd come back later with a friend when I was wanting to stay for a while and enjoy some food. The issue isn't really about the food, although I do think that's odd. It's really just about how I had to actually arrive on site to find out about this requirement. I would encourage any wineries listening to be very careful that all the information that a potential guest needs to know about visiting your location is easily accessible on social media and on your website. While I'm having a great Texas Wine Month, I judged the Lone Star International Wine Competition in Grapevine, And then also this week, I got to taste some great wines, especially the 2020 Texas High Plains Albarino at Hilmi Cellars. I also participated in a virtual tasting with the wineries in Texas Fine Wine, where I was reminded that wineries usually sell out of their rosé by November. So if you're like me, thinking that rosé is a great pairing for Thanksgiving dinner, You better go buy some fast because wineries are selling out and soon there won't be any to be had. How are you celebrating Texas Wine Month? Tag me in your social media posts. I'm at Texas Wine Pod. Podcasts are always free to listen to, but they're not free to produce. If you're inclined to support this podcast, you can do that by visiting thisistexaswine.com and clicking on support the podcast. It's easy to buy me a couple glasses of Texas wine. Thanks, y'all. And thanks to Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope for helping promote the podcast. Visit TXWineLover.com to help you plan your next winery visit. Join me in two weeks for my next episode. And thanks for listening to This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all. Joey Badnyasco is the general. Joey Badnyasco Joey Bag.